enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is presented by Prevenex. Yeah, if you're a runner like me, you know what joint pain can feel like. It happens to so many of us. And now that, shoot, I'm getting a little older, hitting 40 next year. Can you believe it? It's something that's, you know, something that's happening to me more and more. So with that being the case, you know, Joint Health Plus by Prevenex is something that I use every single day and I highly recommend it. If you've heard me talk about Prevenex before, you know I've been using them for months and months, and there's a very good reason why. Not only is this something that I've tried and I have loved, but in addition to that, it's scientifically proven. In fact, you're going to see results in seven to 10 days. That's right, seven to 10 days if you start using Joint Health Plus. I'm telling you, it's just the way it goes. I love this stuff. I couldn't love it anymore, and you will save 15% on your first order by using code RUNNER15 at Prevenex.com. That's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X dot com code runner 15 so this very special episode is with jordan man jordan is one of the best steeplechasers in the country he's going to be on the cusp of the olympic team whenever we have our olympic trials next year in fact he was going to be someone who i was going to be chronicling this this spring in summer uh before the olympic trials was postponed when i was going to do kind of the, the second season of road to the olympic trials he was going to be on that one of the the eight athletes that we had uh programmed to be on that show while that didn't end up happening, I'm so excited to have him on today. So we recorded our initial episode about two weeks ago. However, shortly after we did that episode, uh, the murder of George Floyd happened. And then shortly thereafter, uh, his alma mater, Brown University, uh, he also attended PC for his fifth year. That's Providence College. But he graduated from Brown before he went to Providence College for his fifth year. Uh, they dropped the men's track in field and cross country teams. So from a title nine perspective, those are three specific teams. They dropped those and I couldn't wait to get Jordan back on the show to talk about exactly what happened there and his thoughts on that and what he and a lot of his other, uh, Brown alum are trying to do to get it back. And this is something that is not only prevalent because everyone who's listening to this podcast loves running and all runners. But in addition to that, in the light of uh, the current protests that are happening, and rightfully so, when you talk about equity and, you know, especially with Brown, their their statement about the teams that they were getting rid of um, basically flew in the face of the statement that they put out supporting um, protesters and people who were fighting against systemic racism. And, hey, just that sort of thing doesn't fly these days. You know, if you're going to say stuff like that, uh, your actions better match your words. And I couldn't wait to get Jordan back on the show to talk about that. So the first 15 minutes is the conversation that I had with Jordan this past weekend, touching on those topics. And then we dive into the original conversation that we had, which is all about Jordan Mann. And frankly, there aren't many people in the running community who I'd want to hear more about than him. So I hope you like this episode. And here we go. All right, Jordan, this is going to pop up first on the podcast, but this is actually what we're recording second. As I just described in the intro, I was excited to have you back on the show um, 
after we released, after we released, but after we recorded the first time, because since then, um, we've seen the civil unrest that has happened, uh, after George, George Floyd's murder. And in addition to that, a couple of days later, Brown University, your alma mater and current employer, uh, just cut the men's uh, track, field, and cross-country teams, in addition to some other teams, as well as part of their quote-unquote excellence initiative. And I wanted to to touch base with you because this is something that um, I, I know for you, and you can explain yourself in a second, but you know, hits home in a lot of ways. So when you first saw that this had happened, what was your initial reaction? I mean, more more than anything, it was shock, uh, just surprise. You know, I I, I wasn't like, yeah, I think I, I had a game of mafia with like twenty friends that evening, and so I'm just uh, I'm just on the phone with my friends. We're all chatting, we're all joking around, uh, and I start to notice that my phone is just like blowing up. I'm like, why? They, I have a couple times people are like, dude, are you kidding me? And I'm like, I'm like, what the heck is everyone like 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 like, like just going nuts about right now? And then I go on Facebook a little bit later. And, and, and I saw a post, I think Nora Koritzer, who's a senior at Brown, posted about how they cut the men's track team. And I was like, what? So more than anything, it was just shock. I, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. And a lot of the outrage after the fact was kind of on two different paths. First of all, you know, the whole idea of, all right, this is part of the, again, I can't help but laugh, even though this isn't a funny conversation. The part of the excellence initiative, they got rid of literally one of their historic best sports. Uh, and it was three, it's three sports in total, cross country, track, uh, and field. But with that said, you know, there is so much crossover in a lot of these. So they got rid of some of the sports that are, they are at their best, not only historically, but also recently. And then also, the other side of things, how this does not align at all with the statement that Brown University put out um, you know, shortly before they made this announcement in terms of their support for anyone who was protesting uh, systemic racism and people who've been oppressed over time. And, and even more recently, with everything that's been happening you know, with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and so many other people who um, are victims in this country of, of racism and in and, and, and varying degrees and it just didn't align with so many of the things that they'd already said. And frankly, the Brown University that you kind of knew and grew to love as someone who went there and now currently work there. Yeah, no, I mean, so I, there's a lot to respond to, obviously. But 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 first of all, just on the excellence piece, uh, it's a joke, right? Like, you know, we have our programs produced all Americans. Our programs produced Olympians. Our programs produced athletes like me who are going on to do great things. Our programs produced uh, Ivy League champions, and I mean, part of it, which was just ridiculous, was the article cited. You know, we've only won two point eight percent of Ivy League titles, or whatever. Um, but when when we're the program at your school that you spend the least on, and when you spend that much less on us than every other than every other Ivy League school, the the, the per athlete spending at Brown is lower for track and field programs than any other school in the Ivy League. It, it's a bit hard to win an Ivy League title. Uh, in track when there's so many variables, but we actually had a lot of Ivy league champions. I think our women went one, two, three in the long jump last year. We've had, uh, I think we, we won, uh, you know, we've won Ivy league champions championships in the, in the 400. And I suppose it's, it's, we're talking about the men's team, but even while I was there, we had Ivy league champions in the thousand, in the 800. Uh, we had an all American in the, in the five K who was second all time at Brown in the Ivy league, excuse me, our, our Ivy league record holder, or is, is our school record holder is second all time it, in the entire Ivy League in the 5K. So just 
just the idea that we are somehow that we're somehow not excellent is is ridiculous, especially in a sport like track, which and this is obviously going to transition in part to talking about the second uh, topic. But track is a sport we need a pair of shoes, which means that a lot of people do it. I don't think the sailing team is competing against uh, Alabama. Right. When our athletes are all Americans, they're competing against Alabama. They're competing against University of Florida. They're in a sport where that has Grant Holloway, uh, Noah Lyles, though I guess he didn't go to the NCAA. But, you know, we're in a sport that has the true best athletes in the entire country because everyone can do it. And it's one of those things where where to be a good, you know, lacrosse player, you probably have to be at like a, a prep school in Connecticut. Right. Like to, to have access to that. But if you're fast, all you have to do is run and someone will see that you are fast. And so really just the idea that uh, that, that, that brown track is not excellent is, is just ludicrous. Um, on the second part of it, obviously, you know, obviously there in the world right now are more important things than than the Ivy League, than an Ivy League sports team. Right. We, we have to obviously respect uh, the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor and the you know numerous, countless uh, black people over time who have uh, been victims of police brutality. Um, but we also think this is a time that that there should be a level of, of excitement and initiative around doing things that help fight systemic racism, that around doing things that help create opportunities for black people and other historically underrepresented groups. And what Brown has done just flies in the face of that. Like it, it, it just, 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 just taking one of your most diverse sports teams on the men's side and, and cutting it is just uh, it's a slap in the face. And to do that to those men the week that they had that they watched another murder, the week that they're watching uh, protests erupt around the country during the middle of a global pandemic that disproportionately affected black people like to watch the university do that. Uh, it, 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 it's unbelievable. It's, it's insulting. It's inhumane to see them treated uh, like commodities by the university and then even further to have Christina Paxson issue a statement talking about how she cares about diversity, uh, talking about how she cares, uh, how, how our communities to come together uh, for diversity and, and, and inclusion and, and justice. It's, it's just, it, it's unbelievable and, and frankly insulting. You know, I, I know Russell Dinkins, who uh, wrote an article um, that, that I would love anyone listening to this call to read. Uh, you know, it's called Brown University. If you were really serious about racial justice, you would not be cutting your track team. That article really sums up everything. But I was on the phone with him and he was like, yeah, man, like at first I was like, all right, all right, bigger things going on. And I thought about it for a second. And I was like, wait a second. This this matters like this matters in the exact same way that track is one of those things that's a pipeline for so many people who don't even know what an Ivy League school is you know one of my captains kevin cooper is an irish immigrant and and the reason he came to america he wanted to go to providence college but brown but 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 his coach told me wanted to he should look at brown because you're a good student and he did and he ended up here and it's been something that changed his life coming from a working class family in ireland right his, his dad was a painter uh and it's just it's just uh it's really just incredible um, because that means so many things to so many people and to so many people of color, especially uh, to black people who don't have that opportunity. Obviously, Kevin Cooper is not black, but just just the people who don't have the opportunity for an American dream 
to have one of the few doors shut on them to achieve that is it, it's not what you should be doing if you really care about racial justice. I think Russell said it best. Yeah, and we'll we'll um, tag that in the show notes to this to this episode if people haven't already read it. It's been out there. Even Malcolm Gladwell retweeted that uh, yesterday afternoon, I think, and so it's it's really been out there and is really well done by him. Now, since our conversation, it's been publicized. What Christina Paxson has kind of gone further, saying, "All right, the reason we had to do this was because of Title Nine. Uh, this is out there. Jonathan Galt just tweeted something about this, and it's currently being retweeted. Actually, right before we hopped on this call, I know you read it prior to that, but now it's kind of out there uh, in the public realm. Just to harken back to what actually happened here, um, you know, so she had, she, you know, so Brown University, I shouldn't say she cut Brown University cut the men's." cross-country track and field hockey, cross-country track and field teams. Then there are other teams that were cut or put to the club level as well. Those are men's and women's fencing, men's and women's golf, women's skiing, men's and women's squash, and women's equestrian, which means there was only one team or one set of teams that were put to the club level that was only on the, on the basis of gender, and that was track, field, and cross-country. Everything else was men and women, men and women, men and women. And this is something we see oftentimes as someone who's worked in higher ed now for almost 20 years. We see the title line popping up is instead of amplifying women's sports, oftentimes a lot of schools will diminish men's sports as a way of reaching compliance. But even then, considering all the other moves that happened within that announcement, even that doesn't square with the actions that were taken. Right. I mean, I think what's what's really clear is if you really did care about gender equity, uh, then then increase then, then you, okay, you you took care you you lost a lot of women's spots in equestrian and and skiing and fencing. Okay, like boost your field hockey team, boost our track team, boost uh you know boost our women's hockey team. Like there are so many places that you could put those resources. Uh, but 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 if this is if that's what this is really about gender equity right if you're keeping the women's track team you still need the same facilities and you're still going to have people needing to use that right it's it's not it's not actually decreasing costs in that same way whereas obviously when you get rid of both men's and women's squash teams you don't necessarily need squash courts anymore like now you're suddenly now you still have those same costs you still need those same facilities you just don't have a men's team why not boost our women why not uplift the other women's sports? Because what this is really about is boosting football, boosting lacrosse, boosting other men's sports. It's clearly not about gender equity. It's about finding ways to balance the books when you're cutting sports that happen to have more women than men. And one thing that we talked about offline was that this action actually hurts the women's track field and cross-country teams. Right, exactly. You know, uh, right now there's an Ivy League requirement that you have to have uh, that, that if you only have a one-sided program, you can only have three paid coaches. So I'm sure you can do the math. We have uh, there's distance and mid-distance. There's uh, sprints. There's jumps and there's throws. That's four groups of that's four groups of events that have to be coached uh, at an Ivy League school. So what's going to happen is that 
our coaches are suddenly uh, suddenly the women's team is no longer going to have a coach for certain groups. We're just not going to be able to have throwers potentially, or we're not going to be able to have sprinters uh, with the same amount of coaching and attention that they that they would have previously. It's clear that if the university was thinking about making sure they cared about the women's team, they would not be reducing their number of coaches so people wouldn't even be able to have a specific coach for their event group. If this was about excellence, it should be about excellence for our women as well, and it's not. To say nothing about the coaches themselves, right? If say you're a high level coach and you're considering, you know, some of the other high level, you know, job opportunities, either nationally or even in New England, and you're looking at two different jobs, one side has I'm men's and women's, and men only yeah. has women's. You're like, all right, like, why would I choose the, the 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 school that only has half the team that I want to coach? Exactly, because track and field is, is, is essentially a co-ed sport, right? You practice together side by side. You would want to coach both teams like most places, right? And there are some places where you only coach one or only coach the other, but you still have the sense that everyone's coming together fighting for a common thing, right? Fighting for a common goal. Uh, and, and obviously, I definitely want to make sure that we don't want to give the impression that, that that we're suggesting that not coaching the men is somehow less than 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 anything involving the women. It's not. It's the fact that having both together is an instrumental part of everyone uplifting each other and working together in track and field. It's one of the things where when we talk about sports like football and we see the issues they have. Uh, with how they treat women, there's no analog for women for football besides cheerleaders, which is already a, a, a problematic uh, kind of sexualization of, of women in terms of how they're displayed. In track, you're actually side by side, uh, just everyone of all genders working together to accomplish something. And that has a real humanizing effect in making sure that we see people as people uh, and, and and just moving forward uh, with with gender equality. The university is, while they're cutting the men's program and not cutting the women, they are sending the message to the women on the track team that they don't actually care about track and field. The level of institutional support is clearly going to be down, and the, the, the ability of our coaching staff to take care of our athletes is clearly going to be down because of the decisions that the administration made. All right. Before we kind of transition to the part of the podcast that we've already recorded, is there anything that you want to say before we get going? Yeah. One more thing about Christina Paxson's email. As as you mentioned, she talked about very clearly that it's Title IX, but she also did address some concerns uh, that we've had about the fact that this disproportionately affects Black men. She suggested in her statement that this will, uh, I think, I think it said diversity will be, quote, unaffected by this decision. This isn't a time for us to be talking about diversity being unaffected by a decision. This is a time for us to be talking about actively and, and, and deliberately uplifting people from historically underrepresented groups, specifically uplifting Black people from Black communities. That is not what this decision did. Do I think that she sat there and, and deliberately said, we're going to cut a team that has one of our most diverse teams on campus that has the second most, I believe, number, quantity-wise, a uh, number of black men of all our men's teams? No, I don't think she sat there and did that. But that is the consequences of this action. To, 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 to announce it at the time she did was absolutely insensitive. And this is not the time for us to be standing by idly saying things will be unaffected because unaffected is clearly not good enough in today's world. 
Well said, Jordan. If people want more information about this, this will also be in the show notes, but you can go to savebrowntrack.org, which is kind of the hub of the wheel with all the things that are currently happening in and around this issue. Jordan, man, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Can't wait. Jordan, I know you're a Midwest guy, born and raised, but now you've been in Rhode Island, you know, through your college years, now post-college years. Are you stuck in the lobster trap? Are you here for good at this point? Can we can we claim you as our own here in Rhode Island? You know, I I, I will admit uh, that I still like to say no coast, best coast here and there, just because I do like to, uh, you know, feel, feel unique in that way. And I do have a special spot for the Midwest, but... But uh, I do run the Ocean State Track Club, uh, and this is this is this is my home. This is my this has been my home for the last uh, nine years, uh, and it's going to be my home for the foreseeable future. I love it. I'm I'm a born and raised Rhode Islander. Um, yeah, we've had a couple of Rhode Islanders here on the show, in fact, and, and some of our most popular guests. Uh, one of his one of them is Rachel Shulkowski, who's been on the show a couple times and who's doing great things. I I, I want to claim you as her own, but at the same time, you you are a Midwest guy, and some of your best races have been in the Midwest. So if, if you could if you could if you could, if you could divide up your your home into two places you almost have like uh you know some people have like dual citizenship in different countries you almost have dual citizenship you know you know i'm in the continental u.s in terms of hey you know you got the midwest with like you know at drake and springfield and then you got you got rhode island as well well i feel like i'm the kind of guy who generally likes to keep his connections alive you know like i i'm the one who's even with our, our high school uh cross country and track team who's always like sending the nagging emails like hey everyone we're gonna do a zoom call uh and i'm you know I, i'm that guy for a lot of guys in college and everything so it, it definitely is the kind of thing where i like to you know it's a political answer uh but it's kind of like i'm a, I'm a midwestern boy who's been transplanted out here to the northeast and who loves both of them you know although i will say i still have not gotten over the fact that none of these roads are straight in rhode island that is the thing that drives me most bonkers well our our our, uh state isn't long enough for straight roads we would be in (laughs) connecticut we got plenty of curves they can stay within our borders it's funny though, because my sister, you know, when you when you're from Illinois, you learn the story of the Great Chicago Fire. Uh, when 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 you grow up, and that's why Chicago has good city planning, right? Because it's an, it's a it's also an incredibly old city, uh, but it burned to the ground, uh, and they had to like rebuild it. And by the time they did it, they were like, we're going to build straight roads, so this is like reasonably efficient. Um, and I think my sister came to visit, and I've been saying it for years. But my sister came to visit, and, and and I think we had to go from Providence. We went to from Brown to PC one day on a drive, and she was like. That this can't possibly be the best way to go get here. You know, you're making like three right turns and U-turns. Uh, she was like, this city needs to burn. <laughs> she needs to burn and be built back up. I was like, Madison, Madison, I live here now. I'm a Providence person now. I love this place. Uh, but but that's the one thing that I still haven't quite got used to. I think if if we were talking about houses, you would say that Providence has character. <laughs> that's that, that, that's that's what every one of you northeastern people. See, now I'm sounding too midwestern. I mean, that's what every one of the northeastern people I ever talked to tries to use to explain all the things midwesterners don't like. <laughs> it's like it's, it, it, good good city planning doesn't mean no character. So St. Louis has plenty of character. There's a lot of culture. If you look up the St. Louis City Museum, you can't tell me that a city with the city museum. Uh, is does not have character, right? The city museum, if if you look it up, is basically this massive uh, outdoor park of of wires. It's like a where it's like wire structures, and it can be like a playground, except you're like in wires uh, from a height, 
like a cylinder made up of of wires netted together that go up to like a plane that's propped up by three towers of wires that people can crawl into uh, at a height that you would literally die if you fell. Uh, there's nothing, it's the most amazing place in the world. And between that and the arch, you can't tell me a city like St. Louis or Chicago don't have character. All right. I, I relent. You, you, you can take that side of the argument for sure, <laughs> but you may be, you know, sitting here and telling me the virtue of straight roads and straight paths, but that has not been the case in terms of your running career. That's for sure. And this was something that we were going to dive into um, throughout the throughout the spring and summer, because you were one of the folks who were going to be part of the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast going into the uh, Olympic track trials this coming summer. With everything being postponed, we obviously put that off. So I was really excited to have you on for that. And then, you know, we're, we're diving into this now um, in lieu of those conversations. But I just I love one of those things that we talked about before is. Especially when talking to elite runners. There's this sense within the greater running community and greater running world that if you're an elite runner, you just always have been one of the best runners around. There's just this level of success. It's almost innate. It's genetic. You've been fast forever. And certainly you work hard, but you're just in a different zone than everybody else. And while your your current resume speaks for itself, like you're one of the best steeplechasers in the country, and you're really good at a couple other distances as well, and you're going to be knocking on the door in the Olympic trials in 2021 when we get there. However, this wasn't preordained. So for you, would you if you could go back in time and talk to 14-year-old Jordan or 16-year-old Jordan or shoot, even 20-year-old Jordan, what would that version of yourself think about where you are at this point in your running career? Uh, first and foremost, he would literally not believe it. <laughs> you know, I, I think so often, uh, even friends of mine back in high school had a lot of, you know, dreams, like I'm going to make the Olympics. I'm going to, you know, be this amazing. I'm going to like run, you know, sub 14 or whatever in the 5k, uh, like w- whatever those goals people have are before they, you know, uh, you know, before overwhelmingly, uh, they don't, you know, the majority of people don't make the Olympics, myself included, uh, to this point. Right. Um, and there's a lot of people who have those kind of goals and I was never really one of them. Uh, like the, the way I tend to think about my goal making is it very much is in baby steps. Right. And it's very much about trying to be the best version of myself and, and do it in a way that like makes me happy and is and, and, and has me motivated to just get out there and compete and find my best self or like find whatever version of myself uh, that 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 I can feel over those last, you know, 10 steps of a 5K or steeplechase where you really are just putting everything on the line there. But I've never been the type to to think about getting to the olympics or think about getting to the um or think about you know i never thought i never thought i would be an ncaa champion and i wasn't i, I never thought i would be fifth in the country in uh, an event you know I, I was never fifth in the missouri at the missouri state meet uh and i was only class three so there are about you know 10 guys who, who were better than me in among the bigger schools uh, so if you asked me of, of at 14 years old to to talk to me now, he would think he he would think he must be talking to someone else. <laughs> but it's also hard to say I would go back and tell myself to change anything either, right? Like I've had a, an incredibly rewarding path to where I am. Uh, it, 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 it'd be hard to you'd be you'd, you'd be hard pressed to convince me that by talking to myself about 
and telling myself to do anything differently, that I would somehow end up better than the version of myself that I am. You know, the, the version of myself that's already literally accomplished everything he ever thought he would accomplish in the sport. And that's like an incredibly gratifying thing to feel. So what does that say about the role of patience and finding yourself within your pursuits as opposed to trying to, you know, force it at younger ages and, you know, and, and the like? You know, we hear so often about the positive aspects of, you know, either specializing or really trying to make the most out of, you know, the original 10,000 hours that you got going until, you know, you, you reach that level of expertise. And yet there are a lot of runners who are the best in the country right now, who maybe weren't the most decorated high school or college runners. And yet here they are just like yourself, you know, at the cusp of doing some great things, either have either they've already done it in the Olympics or, or the potentiality of doing it. Um, and we, we sort of see this happen again and again, which is so interesting for an individual sport, not a team sport where this is all on you. You would think it'd be potentially more linear. So what does it say not only about your progression, but other people as well in terms of what is and is not important at younger ages for uh, for either you know, male or female runners. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 obviously a, a big question. Um, if you ask me, I think really the most important. I guess it's funny because I, I just as you probably know from the interviews, like I'm studying Japanese, right? And I just wrote a, a blog on this Japanese learning site that, that with the materials I bought are from that kind of like use my running as an analogy to talk about learning a language. And I think I'm going to do the reverse here. So if you're trying to learn a language, for example, right? And you have to get to a certain point and, you're, and your goal is to reach fluency. When you learn like your first 10 words, you're you're not, if you measure that goal by fluency, you're failing and you're failing utterly and disastrously, right? By the time your lexicon is probably about a thousand words, uh, you've made a lot of progress, right? You can probably have basic conversations. You can probably talk to someone and like get around in a country. Uh, but if you measure that by fluency, you're failing utterly, like disastrously. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you're nowhere near what your eventual goals are, even though what you're actually doing is getting closer to fluency just at a more gradual pace. Like, and that's more realistic because those things don't tend to happen in that way. Um, similarly with, with running, if you're constantly measuring yourself by whether or not you're good enough to make the Olympics, then Unless you're, you know, Evan Jager, Galen Rupp being, you know, the easiest examples to, to think of for me, especially being a steeplechaser, then you're failing, right? Then everything I've been doing has been failing, right? Then then being sixth place in the 32 or fifth place in the 3200 my senior year of, of, of high school was failing. Uh, then being, you know, then running 1410 at Brown was failing. Then then being in a second team All-American in a race in which I fell when I was at Providence was failing. And in reality, there was a lot of progress over the course of that time. Uh, but it's important to make sure you're appreciating progress for the sake of progress and then constantly resetting those goals, right? Like constantly understanding that, okay, maybe I can't look at it, the world and say, I'm going to be an Olympian tomorrow because that's just not realistic, right? It's it's only recently, frankly, become realistic for me to even to even be thinking or dreaming about that. But if you're constantly thinking about pushing yourself to finding the next best version 
of yourself, then you're going to keep making progress towards that that end goal, whatever that end goal for you is. Uh, but you can't always measure yourself by that, or else every progress, no matter how you know how significant that progress is, is is going to be failure. And I think there's a really good example from my career is in my first few years out of college, right? If you kind of look at my PR cycle, uh, during my fifth year, I ran 8.38. It was at the regional meet down in Jacksonville, Florida. I came in, I think, second or third place in that race. And it was honestly one of the <laughs> one of the most amazing races in my life to that point, right? Just uh, like kind of like a real breakout. Uh, first time I got to NCAA, only time I got to NCAAs. Uh, and just like, you know, the the kind of realization of what we knew was there. So that was my PR for the year. And the next year I ended up with a PR of 836, right? So I PR'd by two seconds. Uh, and you look at that and it's not really like a, a that significant of a PR, right? Like nothing from 838 to 836 says that guy reached a, a new level or is like way more accomplished as an athlete or, or way better. Um, but if you look at the previous year, you know, when I ran 838, I think my first race that year, I ran eight, like 52 or something uh, at a home meet on my own. Uh, then I got sick and didn't run again. Then I ran 856 and came third in Big East, which was basically last because there were like three good steeplechasers in the Big East, Scott Carpenter and Darren Fahey, who both uh, whooped up on me that day. Uh, and then and then I ran the 8:38, and then I fell, and then I, and then I fell at NCAA's, and then I ran uh, I think 8:49 or something like that at a Princeton meet, which was actually at that point my second fastest time ever. So I, I had one time under 8:40, and one time that was like uh, just that was like the seven. My next best time was just under 8:50. But the really important thing was the next year I had run. I think I ran 837 for a PR and then I ran 841, which just had me out of the finals at USA's. And then I ran 838, then I ran 836 at Letterkenny. And then I ran, which was a win over a pro field, which was, you know, that was the first time I'd actually competed at that level of a field of that quality. And then in a, a disappointing race, I went out the end of the season and ran about 842. So looking at that, it's not about just the major amount of time that I dropped off. It's about the consistency. It's about being able to say I've reached a new level. And while I don't have a big PR to show for it, I have a lot more consistency to show for it. And understanding that for any kind of athlete, whatever level you're at, that it's kind of about finding whatever evidence you can of the fact that you've improved is a good way to make sure you stay motivated and aren't constantly feeling like you're failing. Uh, it, as you as you look towards you know more ambitious long term goals, you have to really be able to sit and appreciate those ones that you get along the way. And you did a great job of summarizing you know your fifth year on into your pro career there. And truth be told, you could have done the exact same kind of story if you'd started from high school going into Brown. I mean, it was it was a very similar path in a lot of ways. And when you have that sort of step-by-step -step growth and the way you described it just it was just perfect was this something that you came to this mindset organically or did you have some people that helped inculcate that uh into your process i think there's probably some some column a column b right like uh you know column a like i definitely remember it's funny because i even remember him talking about it with a, a different um athlete you know, but Coach Springfield over at Brown and Kurt Benninger, who's Molly Huddle's husband and also was the Brown assistant coach at that point, um, 
I remember them talking about Henry Tufnell, who's an 800 meter runner. He's like a 147 guy. He made nationals, an English guy, and he's great guy, great runner, uh, just you know, quality quality athlete. Uh, and he'd run 147 his junior year, and we were we were all wondering like, oh yeah, hey Kurt, you know, hey hey Coach Springfield, like how fast do you think uh, Henry could run this year? And one of them said something along the lines of, I don't know if he'll actually run that much faster, but I think he's probably going to run a lot more consistently times under 150. Now, Henry only ran a couple times under 150 that year, and it wasn't the it wasn't necessarily the the season he'd hoped for. And uh, but it was it's important thinking about that mentality in terms of understanding progress, right? I, th- I think that was definitely one of the places where I always remembered that conversation, thinking about it in the sense of progress isn't always seen in your PRs is, is I think the key takeaway from that, right? Progress is sometimes seen in the fact that maybe you were, that maybe that you're more consistent. I think if you look at, you know, from the, the year uh, where I had my breakout race to the next year, right? Uh, progress was seen in the fact that, you know, I was, progress was seen in the fact that I was winning races, right? Like, I think I, I won more races than I didn't win outdoors last year uh, until I got injured at USA. It's not that I was going to win that, but, you know, I, I, that, that's a pretty, that's a pretty awesome thing to see. And you say, well, w- whether or not the PRs are all just there, uh, being able to, to win more races is an important thing. Uh, being competitive in fields that have bigger names is a more important thing, like demonstrating your ability to compete in longer races, whereas maybe you had only been a 1500 meter guy is a, is a sign of progress, even if you're not necessarily PRing. And I think, I, so I think that it was in part my understanding that from the conversations that I've had with, you know, old coaches. And I think it was in part my own reflections on my own growth, right? When I, when I would look at my growth as an athlete and say, well, why I've only PR'd by two seconds, but like I look at this year and this is so much better than than the last year, right? Like one year I ran eight thirty eight, made regionals, fell at nationals. The next year I was, you know, first guy out of the final at U.S. Championships. Uh, it's night and day, and and and, and I'm and, and I'm you know whooping up on a pro field at Letterkenny. Like that's that that's that's a whole different thing than finishing third in a in a prelim at the regional meet, even if the times are relatively close. That's a great point, because when you're talking about performances in this sport, you're not just talking about times. You're also talking about who you beat, because these are ultimately these aren't time trials. These are races. And, you know, how and how well you do in regards to your competition is the most important thing. Right. No one no one discounts Matt Centrovitz's gold medal of the Olympics because they didn't run a fast time. <laughs> right, right. No, one, exactly. no one cares right. exactly. you know what i mean like no one exactly. cares that they basically ran the first 800 meters in like 215 in that race gold medal is a gold medal uh so you 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 have a great way of, of describing this granular zoomed in step-by-step goal-making approach in regards to not only goals but evaluating progress when did you start zooming all the way out and thinking, okay, but what am I capable of? And I say this in light of, hey, you know, when you were in high school, you know, your 3,000 meter time was two minutes slower than it is now from a PB standpoint. And, you know, when you went to Brown, Brown's a well-regarded track and cross-country program, but you didn't go there as a recruited athlete. You were there as a as a walk-on. And again, obviously, you were a really good high school runner, but it's, it's, a, it's very different from where you are now. So at what points in your career did you start to really zoom out to see or what am I capable of and what were some of the conclusions that you came to? 
Well, it's, it's hard to say because I, I don't think it's ever like the kind of thing where I've really zoomed out on a holistic level. It's really been more of a, you know, a, a different moments telling me that I was capable of something else, right? Like, you know, you, I, I could tell you that even my, uh, you know, you, at my high school graduation, my coach was like, oh, yeah, this guy could be successful. And not graduation, at the, at the senior track banquet, you know, my high school coach, Coach Z, who I also love, you know, was was like, hey, uh, you know, this guy, you know, he's talking about this, giving, giving out the awards, you know, seniors, seniors and everything. And he's like, hey, this guy could be successful at college level, pro level, whatever. And that was the first time I ever thought, hey, like maybe I could run pro. I had no idea what that meant, though. <laughs> I had not, no idea whatsoever. Uh, I just thought, oh, maybe I should like maybe I could be good at running one day. Who knows? Um, but but I knew going into college that I, you know, I was a relatively undeveloped, underdeveloped athlete. Like, you know, I think I ran a lot of 30 mile weeks and I got my 800 in a relay split down to around 155, 156. Um, but my 3200 meter time was, I think, nine 934 right and 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 while I knew I was capable of running a lot faster than that just because I I think I ran one fresh 3200 meter in in all of high school uh, just because I was always coming back from a relay um you know I didn't know exactly what that meant but I knew I wanted to go to college and be competitive so uh, whatever that meant um so over over a couple years of of college, you know, I definitely saw potential for myself. It was having trouble, was having issues with injury. Um, there was the whole time where I finished last at HEPs <laughs> cross country. Um, but I kind of like would see what potential was there and, and just go for that. Right. Like maybe it was, Hey, I think I can run eight fifteen in the three K. And then I did. Uh, and then I thought I could run, you know, around eight minutes in the 3K. And then I ran 8.04 my senior year. And then when when I went to PC and raced at a coach of me, I thought I could run under 14 in the 5K, uh, having run 14.10 the year before. And then I ran 13.53. Um, so for me, really, it's it's never it's never been a moment where I really just like zoom out and say, wow, I think I can be really good at running. It's just that the the jumps I've made have just continually justified me, you know, continuing to pursue running and 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 really thinking I continue to achieve uh, higher levels. And and I think that the, the couple moments that definitely um epitomize that right are that USA's race where I came fifth and gave uh, the first of two interviews that are uh, both famous and infamous, I would say, <laughs> in the running world. Uh, respectively, but they're so good, Jordan. They're so good. <laughs> I, I, I keep both of them up before this conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first one famous in the running world, second one infamous, I would say. But for better or for worse, it's uh, it's, it's what it is, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but when you look at, I think the two the two moments that first one being at USA's that that first year, um, or that year when I kind of had my big breakthrough, and that was. That was the one where I think came fifth. And honestly, if you asked me before the race, right, I, 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 if you asked me what I thought could happen, I would have said, best case scenario, I think I can finish fifth. I think that I can beat everyone else. And maybe I can finish fourth if Stanley Cabeni is a little bit injured, which it seemed like he was and we hadn't seen results from him. Uh, and you look at the results, that's, that, that's basically what happened. It's just that normally when you have like a best case scenario like that, you're expecting, you know, somewhere between, you know, best case scenario is fifth, you expect somewhere between like eighth and, and tenth or whatever, right? Like not in the worst case, not in the best case. Uh, except mine actually happened. And I think I was on the, the cool down for that run. 
you know, I gave that whole interview and, and, and I realized later that when, when they say, why are you learning Japanese? Uh, the answer is supposed to be because I'm going to try and make the Olympics. <laughs> I, I wasn't even thinking about that. that. That was not even remotely a goal of mine at the point or something I ever thought was possible. And I was on my cool down like, wait, I just came fifth. Like, I could actually make a team one day. Like, it's it's not impossible. <laughs> no, but your answer was so much funnier, though. Yeah, it was. It was. It was the real answer. It was the real answer. I, I wasn't lying. <laughs> I, I wish I was making that up, but, you know, it's, it's funny. <laughs> well, for people who I, haven't I was, heard it. Let me just say, for people who haven't heard it, the answer was, why do I want to learn Japanese? Easy. I love anime. All black people love anime. Like, it was well, like, all oh black my people, God. Black people, black people tend to, not all black people, lots of black people love anime. <laughs> but yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's the kind of thing where, it's the kind of thing where it was just like, that was what was on my mind. And I knew I had been looking for things to learn Japanese for a little while, and, and, and but they were expensive. And I didn't have these checks coming in like that. So I, I had two Gs just sitting there waiting. I knew I had two Gs coming on my bank account soon. So I was like, let's go. <laughs> I'm finally ready to buy these these materials. Um, but it was like on the cool down for that run that I was literally like, oh, crud, maybe I have a chance at this. You know what I mean? Like, I think my dad called me and he was like, are you finally going to stop saying Because I had literally been telling everyone for years that I have no chance of making the Olympics. And they, and they should stop asking me because that's what they ask every single professional runner. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and I've been telling him for years, don't tell anyone I even have a chance. And like suddenly it was like, you know what? Uh, I have a chance. And, and I'm not saying I'm a betting favorite, uh, but I'm saying if you if you're making the odds, I'm on the board. And, and that was a big moment for me as far as realizing that. Uh, and not to mention, too, it was the moment where I kind of decided that I was going to run for for three or four more years. You know, I said originally I went into Ray's office afterwards. It was a funny moment where, you know, I think I, I came fifth to give an interview. Ray didn't even stay and watch because he wasn't sure I was going to make the final. Uh, love Ray. Don't 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 take that as a slight. He <laughs> he knows I love him and and you know it was certainly no guarantee I was going to make the final that year. Uh, but I, I was standing outside Ray's office and I had this stupid grin on my face after all of it. And, and I stood outside the office. I calmed myself down. I said I'm going to go in there looking like a normal person. I opened the door and I had the same stupid look on my face. <laughs> I couldn't hold it even a half second. And we had a laugh. But I was like, Ray, I think you got, I just think you just got four more years of me now. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think the point being that that was the only moment where I, where I knew I was going to go, not just to make the Olympic trials and be a guy who just tries to make the Olympic trials, but a guy who's like actually in it to, to try and do this thing, right. To actually try and, and make uh, one of these teams over the next few years. And, and that was a big moment. And the other one uh, on a t- that see it, it feels less significant, but was the Manchester Road Race this year, where where I came sixth, uh, not wearing vapor flies in a time that is in a time that was like, you know, really really fast. Like it, it was competitive for that course. If you look up the if you look at comparables over the last few years, uh, the time I ran at Manchester, like you basically don't run that time unless you're able to run around thirteen twenty. And I think that was the first time that I actually looked at it after a race. You know, I, I said, I said, I got to the top of that hill. Uh, if you know, if you're familiar with the Manchester Road Race, uh, the course is, has this massive hill from about a mile to uh, two and to about two and a quarter miles. Uh, and I remember going up the hill and just like sticking on it and just thinking, okay, like I just kind of, I kind of got to like, stay in like the, the 10th or like ninth or 10th or whatever. And I just keep going up the hill. And, and, and maybe when we get to about the top, you know, I take this, I took this one tangent, you know, uh, you take the inside lane, of course, and I look over 
And I'm like, wait, where are all the guys I thought I was going to be racing? <laughs> it, it was it was like Hillary Bohr and and uh, Dia Sambasa who who helped me out towards to getting back on that pack. You know, Andy Butchart, um, uh, Chez and Eric Jenkins and me. I was just the other dude who was there. And and it was huge for me at that point. That was the moment where I really felt like crud, maybe I have a chance at not just uh, being an outside shot guy, but being a guy who really is in this conversation for making this team come outdoor season. So I guess the the real message of the stories is, for me, it really never is about taking a holistic look back and saying, suddenly now I'm capable of all this and all that. Uh, it really is incredibly incremental, right? Like, like I said earlier, I have literally accomplished everything I ever thought I was going to accomplish in running. If I, if I retired tomorrow, I would have accomplished all of it. Um, but suddenly it's clear to me that, you know, as I progress, I can also look at that and say, here's something that's reasonable for me to attain in the future. And that's what I'm going into things with the mindset of. Uh, that's how I'm approaching things. That's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, what a stack field. That Manchester Road Race every year is just one of the best races around. It's, it's oddly enough, hasn't gotten a ton of publicity uh, nationally. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it seems that that time of the year, you, you had, you know, it's right at, you know, Thanksgiving and just, you know, that's all busy with Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's just got a lot of stuff going on and it's just, it's just hard to, it's easy to miss. You know, for me, it's like, hey, it's, it's, it's an hour away from my house. So I'm, I'm aware <laughs> right, of it. Exactly, in, fact, right. in fact, I was actually, you know, I was born in Manchester. Uh, so, you know, we oh, have no a little bit of that. Um, you know, don't, don't be fooled. I'm not going to be running uh, 2142 just because I have some sort of like <laughs> ephemeral home field advantage. But, right, right. But, um, <laughs> You know, you, you see people like Hillary Bohr. Now, are you, are you, now are you Connecticut or Connecticut or Rhode Island? Where, where's your loyalty lie? That's the question. Well, you know, I for you know, I have to be honest here. I basically moved to Rhode yeah, Island free kindergarten. That's not an easy question, is it? Is it? Okay, well, okay, no, fair. Yeah, I moved, I moved free kindergarten. So, like, you know, I mean, my my <laughs> recollections of Connecticut was like trying to watch like you know like. Disney at like the next door neighbor's house when I was four because we didn't have it. I think that's like the extent of my memories in Connecticut. Fair. Uh, so, so post those, you know, especially getting fifth at USATF, which was obviously a seminal moment in your career. You talked before about, you know, comparing your running progress to learning a language of like, all right, like if you start, you can't just say, all right, I'm going to compare myself to being fluent. Because that's just not going to be helpful in any way, either short term or long term. And yet, when you got to that moment, you get fifth. You're there. You can look at your other competitors and say, "Hey, man, we're all you know. I'm on the level with these guys." And now this this just changed. This was a paradigm shifting moment. Did that alter that step by step? process that you have so eloquently described uh, in terms of how you approach your results? Or have you now been, you know, kind of unwittingly forced into kind of comparing yourself to others? Because now it's not just simply about progression. It's also, you know, a comparison game on some level in terms of, hey, you're going to be competing with these people, or do you simply just take a it's all about me approach? So the the answer uh, is, I think is reasonably nuanced, but it's basically like I I view competition and external goals as key motivators in trying to find that best version of yourself, right? Like if if it was really if you could just go out and find the best version of yourself as an athlete by time trialing, uh, 
then this then sports wouldn't exist right it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be any fun it, it wouldn't be a real thing and, and so external goals are always a part of motivating yourself to do this right like if if you don't care about shine at all it's it's really hard to get up and be running all these 90 mile weeks <laughs> it's not it's not easy you know uh and so you have to have these kind of external motivators when it comes to things like making teams or coming you know beating this guy or that guy right like even but but i think the important thing is thinking about that on like a on that personal scale in terms of understanding your own progress and understanding yourself right so for example, I think if you take 2018, and, and I had this conversation with Ray and with other people, right? Like, I think a lot of people in my position would have been like, okay, it's going to be like world team or bust. And now I'm going to just go all crazy and be like world team or bust. That's all I'm running for. And and that's just not really how I operate or how I thought about the next year. So I looked at 2018 and I said, that was a huge step forward. Uh, and I said, 2019 is either going to be a year where I make kind of like establish myself as one of those elites uh, but it could also be like one of these years where I get injured and, you know, everything sucks. Uh, or I or I could really or I could just kind of plateau. Right. But but I definitely wanted it to be a year that I established myself as a consistent elite who who wasn't just a one hit wonder. Right. Like with a fluke at in 2018 USA's. Uh, but real, realistically, more than anything, I think my goal as far as progression was just to just to show that I was steady, right? Just to show that that fifth place wasn't an outlier. Um, instead of thinking about trying to make world teams, I wanted to make the world team, and that was a real goal of mine. Especially when it came out that Jager was not competing, <laughs> no, no less. Um, but really, it was kind of you know the the year before in 2018. I think I was fifth at Oxy. Uh, is that I this year I won Oxy. Or in that year, I won Oxy, you know, uh, and then I ran and then when I ran at Princeton, I won Princeton and ran 826. And then when I ran a 1500, I won the slow section of the sunset heat uh, at the sunset meet and ran 339. Right. So it was one of those things where you look at the progress and it was really about saying like, OK, like a world team would be great. And that's definitely now on my radar. But more than anything, I just want to see myself advance in that way. And that's something I accomplished. And, you know, to bring it back to the beginning where I say the alternative is is it could just be a year where I suck and get injured and everything sucks. In, in a way, it was both years, right? I made all the progress and had like an amazing year. And then I got injured and USA sucks. Uh, <laughs> so it was one of those things where, where, where but I looked at back on it on the whole, on the whole and said, you know what, how, how can I be mad at this year? I, I'm so much of a better athlete than I was the year before. I've clearly established that I'm actually going to be a threat to do this if I have reasonably good luck and stay healthy in the future. And that's all really exciting. Yeah, it sure is, man. It really is fun to follow. That's for sure. And the the way you do it, not only in terms of your growth over an extended period of time, is fun to see and inspirational and aspirational for so many people who follow you, as is just how you conduct yourself. I think this interview is a great, uh, you know, great showcase for that. But you know, you've also seen it on these YouTube clips or. You know, anyone who's ever talked to you knows that this is just how you talk. Like you are yourself one hundred percent of the time. And I think that's that's part of I think people's allure in following you personally, that they that they know that you are, you know, you you like to broadcast your full self and you're not afraid to show the eclectic side of yourself. And 
within the running community, oftentimes there's there's a homogeneity to it in so many different forms. For you, what's it like showcasing all the different parts of yourself? You know, whether that's your interests, or you, you've talked about religion as well. And I thought you had this great line. I think it was in, after you finished fifth. Was it uh, uh, Hellelin with melanin? Like you talked about that in the yeah, interview. Yeah, like, yeah. like you're you you not only. Uh, embrace these topics, but you go out of your way to bring them up. So can you talk a little bit about your desire to to showcase all parts of yourself in so many of these media channels? You know, I I wish that I, I wish that there was some kind of strategy behind it that I could talk about. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like, it's like I, I had about eight people text me who said everyone's like, "Oh my god, that guy's so funny," and my sister was like, "That's just my brother." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like I, I don't know another way to be, <laughs> and, and I certainly wouldn't ask to be another way. But it's the kind of thing where that 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 really is just the dude I am. Like I think even after the you know interview where I was like you know I would. I would, uh, what did I say? Uh, you know, yeah, it could, it could be if I, I people think how would I, how fast would I run if I was sitting around uh, jacking off all day? Like even even in that interview, right? I was talking to Brandon Dowdy, who's been one of my good friends in the circuit, and he was like, "Yeah, dude, I've heard you say that like eighty times." <laughs> you know, like like I'm the kind of guy who sits here and I and I, I, I when I look at that interview, I'm like, I thought I was trying to deliver an insightful point. <laughs> I thought I was trying to deliver an insightful point about being content in, in in your surroundings and not always unhappy thinking that something is better somewhere else, but understanding how to say these things are good and I'm happy here. That's the point I thought I was trying to deliver. Uh, but I guess everyone got, got caught up in my language. <laughs> uh, but but realistically, it's honestly just the person that I am. Uh, and, and it's not, you know, to be fair, like, I feel like there's almost been some kind of pressure on me now when I talk to the press to be somehow interesting or hilarious or ridiculous. And like, sometimes like in, in this interview, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm getting to showcase the side of myself that I definitely would <laughs> wish that that maybe uh flow track would would have seen more too was is the fact that i do seem to think i do tend to think about things a lot and 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 i think have like interesting reflections on things um like like when i made that jack and off comment for example <laughs> uh but for me it really is just about being myself and, and that's who i am and in all my conversations that's who i am to my sister that's who i am to you know, my teammates, that's who I am to the people who are around me. Um, like I'm, I'm the same kind of goofy guy. I'm all business when it's time to be business. And I love anime and love talking about that stuff too. <laughs> and do you have uh, younger runners reaching out to you now who view you as someone that they aspire to be or looking for mentorship or things along those lines? Yeah, sometimes. And it's honestly really cool to, to see those things. You know, like I have a friend who coaches in St. Louis who was talking about like, there's one girl who just really wanted a, a signed, you know, letter from me to, with just like some encouraging words. And it was really cool to, to just like just the idea of being of me being someone who's able to connect with people in that way and like give encouragement in a way that that means something is awesome. You know, I, I've had one, one uh, high school athlete from Massachusetts, I think, reach out and be like, Hey, it's like so cool to see you out there as like a, a Jewish athlete, which especially as a Jew of color, which is which which is something that makes it, uh, you know, a lot of Jews of color tend to have complicated relationships with Judaism, and like I'm not entirely um, 
I'm not entirely excluded from that just because I, I work at Hillel, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of complicated feelings where no one thinks you're Jewish or identifies you as Jewish and, and, and you feel in some ways ostracized from from the community in that way. And even seeing like a, a young Jewish athlete be like, it's so cool to see you as a Jewish athlete and a role model succeeding. Like that's, that's freaking awesome. You know, uh, even like guys in Providence, you know, I think there are a couple guys, um, there's a couple guys as well, like who, who I run into a fair bit. I think uh, one, one of them ran at Hope High School, it's probably about two distance from his Hope High School. And I managed to run into both of them. Uh, but you know, it's, it, just even being able to be like an older black distance running role model, right? Uh, like that's that's pretty cool and pretty awesome just to to be able to do that as like an as like a, a born African American, right? Like and be able to connect in that way where 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 there isn't this culture among being a distance runner and it's kind kind of countercultural. Uh, you know, just just anytime I'm able to connect with people honestly and, and provide any kind of connection or like inspiration, it, it really is meaningful when people feel like that hits. Yeah, I can imagine the, how you described it as countercultural. I thought was insightful as well. And, and you brought up the fact that you know when people see you, they don't necessarily connect you to your Judaism. And is that is that on some level is that a blessing and a curse? Because I can see how on some level you'd want to be, you'd want to you know have that connection at first glance because it is a part of your life. And then in another way, you know, you're also you know, you you can't be typecast into something that, you know, you are necessarily voluntarily, voluntarily, you know, telling somebody. I think with, with that one, like, okay, okay. Here's what, I'll tell you what the blessing is. I'll tell you what the curse is. <laughs> the blessing is being able to have both of these cultures that are able to enrich my life from like, you know, African-American culture and being a part of, of my mom's family uh, is just like this amazing thing. Um, and from Jewish culture and being a part of my dad's family and being able to be involved with Hillel and have like these spaces for reflection, uh, that's like also an amazing thing. And the curse on the other side of hand is just like this feeling of, of outsiderness within uh, the Jewish community. And I think a lot of that, frankly, just comes from, from the, the lack of visibility or understanding uh, about Jews of color as being a real thing. Uh, and I think like, honestly, like that's, you know, my mom had converted to Judaism before I was born. And I think she felt a lot of that as, as a black Jew who, who was also a convert, you know, I, I think there were a lot of complicated feelings, but, it, but it's not always the friendliest place when you're a Jew of color. And, and that part is, is kind of just a curse, <laughs> but, but as the person, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, re, I wouldn't turn down any of the cultures that have been given to me. Uh, because they all make me part of this, like, you know, unique person that I am, right? Uh, and and all those things are beautiful, and they've all really enriched my life and given me so much. And, and that's the kind of thing I'm always very thankful for. And that difficulty that you described, is that part of, or maybe entirely the reason why you work at Hillel now? No, the reason I work at Hillel is because I was looking for part-time work coming out of my fifth year and I was at High Holy Days and the rabbi who recognized me from undergrad was like, what are you still doing here? You want to come work here? Because they were looking for someone to work there and it, and it turned out to be a perfect kind of job. Um, but it's been one of the more meaningful things about working at Hillel and that it allows me like, especially, you know, at, as someone who so, most people would not look at and think that guy is Jewish. Uh, it makes it, so much just having being a part a part of the establishment in a way 
makes it so much more freeing, right? Because because I'm not getting asked if I'm Jewish every 10 seconds by like everyone, or I'm not having people react with surprise uh, when I can actually say the prayers in Hebrew. Um, that still happens sometimes, <laughs> but it's not with people who are regularly in our community. And I think that's the kind of thing that's uh, incredibly, incredibly rewarding as uh, as a, as a Jew as a Jewish person of color, right? Um, and I think the other thing is just being able to work with the student group that I mentioned. You know, the Hillelum with Melanin students. It's the kind of thing where it's not always an easy student group to work with, just because there is such a complicated relationship between so many Jews of color uh, and Judaism. But it's the sort of thing where you see that there's enough people who say, "Hey, even as a Jew of color, even despite all this." all these negative experiences that I've had uh, with racism in the Jewish community, I am choosing to be part of this because my Judaism matters to me at some real and some tangible level. Uh, and, and that's really cool. And it's, and seeing the fact that having a student group matters, whether or not that, you know, it's like, a, it's not the easiest students to get, come get, be a part of established Judaism. It's, it's, it's not the easiest thing, but seeing them choose to do it sometimes and seeing how meaningful it can be just to have that visibility in the fact that, you know, there are other Jews of color out there, whether or not uh, you know who they are. It's the kind of thing where you, you might look around at High Holy Day services the first time and be like, oh, like I see a few other, you know, Asian, Black, whatever people and think, oh, that must be someone's non-Jewish friend here for the like, cultural experience. And like, you know, there might still be that. Like I had friends who who did that, you know, who, who, who were just like wanted to have a cultural experience. But in reality, now I look at it and I think, oh, that person's probably a Jew of color. That person's probably also a Jew of color. And that's like a really cool thing to to have change and recognize and i think it's just really incredibly meaningful for me to see that it that it matters it matters to me and and it matters to students at a real level just having that space and working in a faith community on a college campus is a unique setting uh, no matter the circumstances because for so many young adults who are now kind of being fully independent for the first time especially if they've kind of grew up um, with, you know, forced might be too strong of a word, but if they're, if they're kind of their family heritage has led them into religion on some level, they finally are at a point now where they could then decide how much, if at all, they want to continue that or even move in a different direction. What do you say to folks who are, you know, considering the importance of being part of a faith community once they're in the position to fully make that decision for themselves? So what, what what I'll say is it's easiest for me to speak to Judaism specifically because there is a, a specific cultural element to it, and there are pieces of other religions that don't always uh, work for me, but but I hope that what I can say is applicable to anyone who's thinking in that way. Um, is just like figure out what part of the, the culture works for you, right? Um, like maybe it's not High Holy Day services or, or praying or, you know... Uh, or like the the ritual pieces of it, like maybe it looks more like eating matzah and <laughs> eating matzah and kugel or, or whatever. Um, but there's a lens with which you can use uh, Judaism to think about things, whether or not you believe in God, whether or not you believe in uh, you know anything supernatural or sentient things, whether or not you want to have a totally rationalist uh, reading of things. It's important to understand that so many of us, like, uh, unless you are like, you know, the, the Pope or like a, an Orthodox 
uh, rabbi, like you're picking and choosing for the most part, right? Like, and it's important to acknowledge we're picking and choosing and saying, hey, like which of these things can have value for me and provide a lens to find the self-reflection and and inner, you know, basically like the self-reflection or life enrichment or community that I need. And go ahead and pick and choose those things and, and find that because uh, it doesn't have to come with all the baggage. All right. Last question before we get out of here, Jordan, thank you so much for just talking about so many different things and being so open and expansive in, uh, in all of these areas. How are you feeling now? Well, I'm, I'm a little bit injured now, so that, that kind of sucks. <laughs> but you know, I, I think it's the best kind of thing where, where you just, uh, you know, you, you take everything, you roll with the punches. I've made a lot of great progress at Japanese in the last uh, month or two and really see the, the path to, you know, I, Worst case scenario, I'll be able to translate for a lot of people by the time uh, Tokyo comes around, uh, <laughs> language-wise. And and it's just been a lot of fun just doing yoga and having a lot of time to myself. Uh, it's been it's been a good quarantine for me. I've been able to just like spend a lot of time, you know, thinking, reflecting, studying, uh, and and kind of just being alone. So I'm excited for things to to get opening a little bit. But you know, uh, hopefully, I'll just be on the right path as far as getting healthy. You know, the, the good news is once I'm running 90 miles a week, I don't tend to get hurt. I only got injured uh, on break somehow. No idea uh, this time. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I'm just excited to get back at things. You know, I, I think I have a smile on uh, more often than not. And, and, and I'm always generally happy despite the fact that uh, an injury hold me back. You know, I think I have a lot going on uh, as a person outside of running, too. And that keeps me that keeps me feeling full even when I'm empty on track. Man, talking to you is just such a delight. Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Matt. <laughs> My pleasure. It's a great time chatting, and I really look forward to, to being able to do it again. Thank you, Jordan, for coming on the show. Not twice, three times. The first time we recorded the additional 15-minute segment. For some reason, it didn't record. <laughs> Thankfully, Jordan came back on uh, to talk so passionately about what he believes so strongly in. Also, thank you to our sponsors, the Heber Half and Prevenex.com. Just something to clarify in the intro, and I think when I was talking to Jordan as well, I said that he was employed by Brown University. He works at the school, but he actually is technically employed by Hillel International. So that's who technically signs his paycheck. So while he is certainly at Brown and working with Brown students, he is not employed by them. So just want to correct that. Jordan, thank you for giving me the heads up about that. Thank you so much for listening and sharing the show. It means so much to me. If you liked what you hear, please go check out my new podcast, Drop Last Week, The Business and Sports Discourse. It's three episodes a week, 20 minutes each, about the intersection of sports and business. This week, we're going to talk about um, basically a topic that we talked a lot about today here in the first 15 minute segment. And it's about these businesses, brands, teams, and leagues who are putting out supportive messages around the topic of systemic racism. But what does that actually mean in terms of how they're going to behave in the future, uh, not only short term, but long term, and how that affects their athletes and how athletes work with sponsors to that end or how sponsors fail to work with athletes to that end, especially if they've offered support in the past. So go over there, check that podcast out. Thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. 
Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.